I would encourage you to turn in your copy of the scriptural text, either the one that you brought with you to service this morning or the one that's in the rack in front of you, and turn to the passage that Pastor Dave read a few moments ago from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today in our continuing study in this very practical uh, yet uh, a contemporary sounding letter of Paul to the church at Corinth and speaking to us as Christ followers today about learning to live authentic lives as Christian people. Before we uh, delve into the scriptural text, the portion before us today, I want to express um, a word, a pastoral word, I suppose a caveat to the things that uh, I'm about to share. And and I want you to hear my heart as well as my words this morning. I want you to hear my heart as we deal with uh, a very difficult passage, as last week's particular passage was. Today is very much like it, uh, because there are some things that go against the direction and the flow of the world around us. And I suppose it's possible that there are some of you here this morning who would listen only to my words and not hear my heart and walk away feeling that what I have shared is either harsh or unbending or unreasonable or undoable or you fill in the blank. And, and I don't want it to be any of those things. I want to be true to the Scriptures while at the same time speaking pastorally to you as one of the shepherds of God's flock here in this part of Christ's body. And I want you to know that even though um, the Scriptures and Paul today holds up the standard very high, provides an ideal standard for married people, that because we live in a depraved and fallen world and sin has its effects, that there are some of us who are not living out that ideal. And that for some of us in our past, there have been things either through our own disobedience or things because of someone else's action and disobedience that we are having to suffer through some of that pain, either in the past, and it's been healed, or currently, and we're still in the process of being healed. And I understand that this morning, that even as I share, I understand that that's the case. I'm thinking that somebody might still have their microphone on somewhere. I hope they're not in the restroom. So, hear my heart this morning. I love you. I care about you. I want First Alliance to be a healing place. I want this to be an environment in which we can be honest and real and authentic and transparent and and admit that we don't have it all together, that all of us are living messed up lives. At least a couple of you are willing to say amen to that. And even though my own personal struggle does not fall in the area that, that we're going to be dealing with this morning, there are places in my life and my journey with Christ that 
that are hard and there are places in my walk with God that God, by His Holy Spirit, is still refining and purifying and purging out the dross and, and shaping me into and conforming to me to the image of His Son, Jesus. And I'm just a fellow adventurer on that way. I don't have it all together, despite what you might think. And so my words this morning come from a pastor's heart, but with a desire to be true to the written and revealed Word of God. And sometimes that's a delicate uh, walk and line to balance. One of the joys of my pastoral ministry is participating in marriage ceremonies for young couples. It is Frankly, one of the favorite things that I got to do as a pastor. I love it. I, I don't usually have to think twice about doing a wedding. I just love what it's not work to me to be a part of a wedding. I, I love the preparation of a couple and seeing the pie-eyed optimism of young people who think that the romance will last forever and that there'll be no problems in marriage that will be insurmountable. And, and I just love that. It's just wonderful to me. And to be a part of the wedding ceremony, the day of the great celebration, as family and friends from all points come together to see the potential and the promise of this young couple as they come together and they promise their love and devotion one to another. My favorite part in the wedding ceremony, absolutely favorite moment, is when the bridal processional sounds in its grand trumpet and we're all standing here and the doors open and the bride first appears. I always don't look toward the bride, but I look to the groom to see the expression on his face. Uh, and he's always overwhelmed at the beauty of his bride. And then as the young couple promises their their love and devotion to one another for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, plenty and want, till death to us part. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The celebration is followed by a joyful celebration and we get down and party and it's capped off by a romantic honeymoon and they live happily ever after. Not. For some, it happens sooner than other couples, but sometime as they settle down in their new life together, the problems begin to develop and begin. Little things that begin to annoy each other. She becomes annoyed by the way he squeezes the toothpaste from the middle of the tube rather than at the end, or the way he leaves the toilet lid up when he, everyone knows that you keep the lid down. And things that once were overlooked now become major mountains and struggles. Whereas the partners listened sympathetically to one another and they loved uh, being together every moment, now, now he begins going out with the boys on a regular basis. And the evenings that they do have together are spent in front of the television with no conversation, except when an argument pops up about this or that, and communication breaks down, and conflict is not resolved as it once was. And love begins to grow colder, and sooner or later in some situations, one of the partners 
will fall prey to temptation and will give in to that temptation. And sooner or later comes and announces to their dear spouse, I don't love you anymore. I'm in love with someone else and I want a divorce. Some of you have lived out that pain personally. Some of you are in the midst of it right now. And your, your life is broken. And you don't have a lot of hope today. And I'm sorry. And I want to help and I want to pray and I want to, to be with you on this piece of the journey. There are so many variations on the theme that I've just given you. There's not just one set of circumstances. There are many. As you know, divorce has reached epidemic proportions in America today. Researchers tell us that nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. And these numbers are virtually the same for Christian people as they are for people who have no faith walk. It's always a very sobering thing to me when I stand with a young couple at the marriage altar, remembering the statistics and hoping that somehow our preparation and our prayer and our investment in these young people will go against the tide of the statistics. But it's always very sobering to me to realize that statistically that one out of every two couples that I marry, that one of those will end in divorce. It tears my heart out. But the problem of divorce is not unique to the 21st century. It was a problem that was very much a problem in the first century and was a problem in among the church people at Corinth. Seneca, the great Roman writer, said that women in the Roman Empire counted their age not by the number of years that they had lived, but they counted their age by the number of husbands they had. The same thing was true for Jewish society. According to the Old Testament law, according to life in Israel in Jesus' day, to divorce one's wife was simply a matter of writing on a sheet of papyrus, I am no longer married, and with those words, hand it to the wife, and the divorce was final. They were legally considered to be divorced. The Mosaic, the Old Testament law, provided for the possibility of divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, a passage that regulated divorce and remarriage. It says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The Jews in Jesus' day read that passage from the Mosaic Law and came up with two possible interpretations. There were two major schools of thought on this matter. There were those who were part of the school of Shammai that believed that what that meant was that divorce is acceptable if your wife has committed some immoral act. 
this would be what the phrase some indecency and heard there in Deuteronomy 24 was uh, referring to. That that would be the basis for a legitimate divorce. The second interpretation and the more popular interpretation in Jesus' day was held by followers of a rabbi named Hillel who said that anything which a husband uh, decided to uh, determine was a, a reason for divorce, uh, anything that the husband didn't approve of in his wife could constitute uncleanness. Therefore, if your wife burnt your toast in the morning and you didn't like burnt toast, that that was a legitimate basis for divorce. Or if your wife did not clean the house to your particular specifications, you could divorce her according to the school of Hillel. Or, if you found another woman who was more attractive to you than your wife, then you could divorce your wife and remarry someone else. That was the interpretation of this major school, of this rabbinic school of thought. And it was very, very popular. And you can see why for the men it would have been a very popular thing. Especially for those who wanted to get a divorce. The Gospels, and the Gospel of Matthew, tells us about one day when a group of Pharisees came to Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew 19, and they came to Him. Verse 3 of 19 says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test Him, and they asked Jesus, Is it lawful, Jesus, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You see, they wanted to pin Him down and see if they could figure out whether Jesus followed the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel. Did He say that it had to be for some immoral cause? Or was He of the school of thought that was more popular in the day that any reason a man wanted to divorce his wife, He could? They wanted Jesus to choose sides. They'd already assumed that it was perfectly acceptable for a man to divorce his wife. The only question was, what were the legitimate terms of such a divorce? Can you divorce for any cause at all? Or must immorality be involved before a divorce can take place? So look at the answer of Jesus to the Pharisees' question. In verses 4 through 6, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I think it's very interesting that Jesus does not uh, buy into the trap that the Pharisees had set for him. He does not choose between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Instead, Jesus turns to a higher authority, as he so often did, even in his temptation in the wilderness. He turns to the Scriptures themselves, in this case the Torah, the Law, and he quotes Genesis 2, chapter 24, a verse that says that marriage involves two people becoming one flesh. Jesus says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Jesus is saying that according to God's ideal, keep that in mind, 
according to God's ideal, the pattern that God has set for marriage between a husband and a wife is for a, a lifetime, that there is no place for divorce within God's pattern for marriage. He does not say that it is okay to divorce for any reason. And Jesus does not say that it is okay to divorce for immoral impurity. He simply says there should be no divorce. Marriage, as I said last week, in God's pattern, in God's ideal, is meant to be permanent. It's two people becoming one flesh for a lifetime. Two becoming one. You can't divide one. It's indivisible. You can only cut one up into pieces and thereby cause great harm. Think for a moment, if I were to come up to you this morning and suggest, I'm going to cut you in half and make you into two people. Why, you'd be horrified by such an intention. What would your reaction be? You'd be horrified. The very idea. And God is saying the same thing, that in my ideal, my pattern for, for creation, for this, this creation that I've made out of the dust, this man and this woman, is that they would find partnership and companionship and completion and fullness in one another, that the man and the woman shall come together and be one flesh. And the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They understood that he was saying that divorce is not good for any reasons. They understood that Jesus was declaring that marriage is meant by God to be permanent. But they keep pressing. And in verse 7 they say, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Again, they're, they're just needling Jesus to try to catch him in saying something wrong. The rebuttal of the Pharisees. Yeah, we know that marriage is intended by God to be permanent, but then why did Moses say that it's okay for people to get divorced? You see, the Pharisees had missed one important point. It was this, that Moses did not tell people to get divorced. The question of the Pharisees was a loaded question. It was like asking someone, do you still beat your wife? They asked him, why did Moses command that it was okay people to be divorced? But Moses had not commanded people to be divorced. He did not advocate divorce. Instead, Moses regulated marriage after a divorce had taken place. And he said, if a divorce takes place and a remarriage follows, the original couple are never permitted to marry each other again. And Jesus points this out in verses 8 and 9, he says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. This is a, a move away from God's intention in the beginning. It's a distortion of God's plan and pattern. And Jesus goes on, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus says that Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts. And when, because of such hardness, there is immorality, then Moses permitted a divorce to take place. And outside of such a case, there is, no, there is to be no divorce. Now, as Paul writes to the Corinthians here in the first century... A number of years have passed since Jesus spoke that conversation with the Pharisees. 
Churches had been planted throughout the Roman Empire. And a church had sprung up in this metropolitan city of Corinth. And within that church at Corinth, there were all sorts of people with all sorts of background, all sorts of social and moral pedigrees. There were Greeks who had previously, before coming, becoming a Christ follower, there were Greeks who had worshipped at the Greek temple of Aphrodite with all of its prostitution and pagan worship. There were Jews in that church at Corinth that, that believed because of their, their mosaic uh, interpretation, they believed that it was alright to divorce one's wife at the drop of a hat. There were married people in the church at Corinth who were experiencing problems in their marriage and they were looking for a way out, a place to bail out. There were those who were married to pagan unbelievers who still worshipped at the Greek temples and they weren't sure what they ought to do. Should we divorce our unbelieving spouse or should we stay with them? And this was part of the questions that the leadership of the church at Corinth sent to Paul and said, Paul, help us to untangle this horrible mess. We need some divine guidance in all of this. And so Paul writes to set the record straight on the issue of marriage and divorce. And he deals with three specific cases. And I wish that we had more time than we have a lot to do us this morning to deal with these things. But let me just touch on them each briefly. The first case he deals with is to, uh, to address two married believers. Two married believers who are not getting along. Let me just say something right here pastorally. Hear me now. Just because you're a Christian does not guarantee that you're not going to have problems in your marriage. Being two believers does not guarantee you a trouble-free marriage. Could I hear an amen? Uh, as I said last week... Marriage is a journey. Marriage is a commitment. Marriage is something that, that as you commit to the Lord and lean on the Lord for strength, He gives you help to forgive one another, to, to learn to live together with, in peace, to serve one another. Husbands serving their wives as Christ serves the church. Wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord. Uh, this wonderful partnership together. And if we pretend that that Christian marriages are all perfect and wonderful, all, all pie and wine and roses. It ain't true. And we can't turn our backs on the reality of marital problems, even in Christian marriages. And so Paul has some very real things to say to some very real people with some very real problems, but he gives some very specific instructions. And he says, first of all, to the married, verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He wants to make sure that you understand this is the Lord saying this. A wife must not separate from her husband. One commanded to stay. That's very clear. The wife is told that she is not to leave her husband. The word leave is the Greek word karidzo. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said in Matthew 19, 6, What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate, karidzo, tear apart. Jesus is referring clearly to divorce, as is Paul. It's very clear. Commanded to stay. To the married, I give this command. A wife must not separate from her husband. This is God's ideal. Secondly, a command to remain unmarried. But, verse 11, but if she does, she must remain unmarried 
or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, Paul realizes that divorce might be unavoidable for the Christian. And again, I can't cover every circumstance and every situation that you have known or experienced. But let it be sufficient to say this morning that we live in a fallen world and, and that doesn't change just because we're Christians. There are instances in which a Christian might be married to another Christian and still be forced into a divorce. It's not God's plan. It's not His ideal. It's not His desire. But I understand that it happens. And in such an instance, Paul has one command, and it is that there be no remarriage unless it is the reunion of a broken marriage. The principle there is one of restoration. The Christian woman, the Christian man, is to do all in his or her power to rebuild the broken marriage. To this end, the Christian is to do one of two things. Remain unmarried and be reconciled to your partner. Now, does that sound harsh? I suppose some of you might interpret it as such. Does that sound as though Paul is being unreasonable to women? I suppose you may think so. He isn't because to the husband of a Christian marriage, Paul has an even stricter injunction, a command to husbands. In verse 11, he says, And a husband must not divorce his wife. Remember, men were divorcing their wives for any old reason. And he said, This must stop. This can't happen. The Christian husband is told in no uncertain terms, don't divorce your wife. And this flew in, in the teeth of the common practice of the day. Secular society was telling everyone, oh, it's okay. You needn't stay married. Go ahead, divorce your wife. You owe it to yourself to find someone that you can be happy with. And both Jews and Romans made a regular habit and practice of it. But Paul says this needs to stop within the church because God's pattern, God's ideal is one man, one woman for a lifetime. And the Christian, the true, authentic Christ follower, should not give in or conform to the moral standards of the world. And my dear friend, it might sound old-fashioned, but I believe that what was true in Paul's day is also true today. That divorce is still Against what God planned. I understand that there are circumstances. I understand that there are situations. I am not deaf to that. Please understand me. But it's not God's plan. And it's not His pattern. Secondly, Paul says to the married, to the rest, I say this. Interesting, we don't have time to explore this, but he says, I, not the Lord. A lot of conjecture about what that means, that Paul's just stating his own opinion here rather than relying on the Lord. I don't think that's what it means. But he says, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified, that is, set apart for the blessings, the covenant blessings of God, has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, that, that is, not set apart. 
But as it is, they are holy. They are set apart for the covenant blessing of God. So Paul is talking about a mixed marriage here, where one of the partners is a believer and the other is not. Now, let me make it perfectly clear, in case you've forgotten, that in chapter 6 of Paul's letter, he's already said to us that a believer should not be bound together with an unbeliever. Do not be unequally yoked. Let me put it in clear terms. If you are a Christ follower, you should give not one iota of consideration to entering into a marital covenant with a non-believer. You have a different perspective. You have a different heart. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And those who are set apart for God should not give consideration to being aligned with, married to, a non-believer. Is that clear? Now let me go uh, away from the Scripture and give you the Scripture according to Rick Crocker for a moment. Not only do I think that it is unwise to be bound with an unbeliever in marriage, but I think it is wise to consider that every date you have, every person you date, is a potential mate. And if you're dating young people, single people, if you're dating unbelievers, you're on a slippery slope. And my encouragement, again, I can't, I can't appeal to any verse of Scripture here. This is uh, the Gospel according to Rick Crocker, chapter 1, verse 8. If you're dating a non-believer, you need to stop it. Let's not do this evangelistic dating thing. Oh, pastor, I'm going to get him saved. I can't tell you the numbers of people that I've talked to that had that approach and that idea and who are dealing with wretched pain in their relationship today. So Paul says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. But he says, if, because there are some situations in Corinth where they were already married to an unbeliever when they came to Christ. The principle is clear here. Paul says the Christian is not to initiate a divorce. To the man who has a wife who is an unbeliever and yet desires to continue living with her husband, Paul's command to the Christian is, do not seek out to be divorced. He says, just let it be. Don't you initiate the, the divorce. But there's a third case, also a mixed marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And this case is uh, one in which the unbeliever initiates the divorce proceedings. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound. Look at that. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So what Paul is saying in this third situation is, if the unbeliever is initiating divorce and wants to bail out, then live peaceably with this individual. I have seen situations where a person has come to Christ and the unbelieving partner is so antagonistic toward the Christian faith, toward that partner's conversion to Christ, that the unbelieving partner will seek out a divorce. 
And the principle in Scripture is that God has called us to live at peace. And if we can live peaceably with that unbelieving partner, we are to do so. But if that unbelieving partner wants to bail out of the marriage, we are to let him or her do so, and we're not to fight them in their quest for a divorce. In such a case where the unbelieving partner has initiated the divorce, the believer, according to this, the believer is not under bondage to the marriage vows that were taken. And I take that to mean Paul saying that you are free to remarry. If that weren't the case, I think Paul would have repeated what he had said earlier in verse 11, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. He does not say that here. So I believe that he's saying that you are free to remarry. So Paul takes three situations, two believers, rough time, divorce is not God's ideal, his pattern. A mixed marriage, a believer and an unbeliever. And he's saying, you know, just... Hold out there. If you can live at peace with one another, do so. Don't bail just because they're an unbeliever. And again, another mixed marriage. But if the unbeliever decides to leave and initiates the divorce, live at peace. And you're free to remarry. Now, there is no way. Absolutely, I knew I was dead in the water before I ever started this morning. There is no way that I can treat this issue fully and completely in every circumstance and every situation that you might want to throw at it. But hopefully, what I've done this morning is to adequately and fairly treat this small uh, text and help you to dig more into what the Scriptures say about the guidelines for marriage. I know this with all of my heart that the Bible says, that marriage is a sacred institution and that God's ideal and God's pattern is one man, one woman for a lifetime. It's not God's plan that we should be divorced. God hates divorce. But we live in a fallen world. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. I understand that some of you have been caught in some terrible situations that have been painful and hurtful to a degree that I can't even begin to comprehend. And I'm so grateful for this church and particularly for Chuck and Mary Beth Master who lead our divorce care ministry, who provide such uh, a place for healing and restoration and for God's love to soak in in a very difficult time that I can't even comprehend because I've not experienced it. Chuck and Mary Beth and others in that group are, have been such a help to so many within this body that are experiencing this painful thing. I want you to know, though, that there is no need for you, if you've been through divorce or you're going through divorce, there is no need for you to, to feel like a second-class citizen You don't have to wear a a big capital D plated on your breast. You, You don't have to, well, I'm divorced. You're a child of God. You're a child of His grace. I want you to know that it is not my heart that you would be discriminated against in any way. 
Sometimes because of the pain and the wounds of separation and divorce, sometimes you're going to have to live with some uh, continuing consequences. If you've been through it, you know it full well. You know the headache of of passing children back and forth. You know the headache of having to go back to courts to hammer out custody agreements and custody payments and, and, and all of those things that are wrapped up in this. You know the pain of it. And there will be some ongoing consequences that you're going to have to live with. Either because of you not living up to God's standard or someone else not living up to God's standard and you being a victim in it all. And I am truly sorry. I am, I, my heart is broken for you. And I want to come alongside of you to lovingly encourage you back to, to full health spiritually. There is grace. Divorce, hear me. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And in a moment when we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that all of our sins, my sins, your sins, all of those were paid for in full at the cross of Christ. And there is no distinction at the foot of the cross. The ground there is level. And you and I stand on the same plane. But let us not buy into the world's message that says, if you're tired of your spouse and you don't feel love for him or her anymore, then you can throw it away and find someone else. Of all people, Christian people, should be standing up and being counted and saying that the institution of marriage is something that we're in favor of and we're praying for and we're working toward health and healing in that area. May God help us in that. And may we be faithful as authentic followers of Christ. Lord, help us in this community of faith. Help us to be genuine and sincere, to be real with one another and understand that because of our sin and our brokenness, all of us bear some brokenness in our life that, Lord, we are in the process and that you are continuously shaping and conforming us to the image of your son, Jesus. Today, Lord, we are particularly mindful of those who are married within our body. We pray for married individuals, those who are happily married and enjoying uh, the, the wonders of this sacred institution of marriage. May they become templates and exemplars to us of what it means to have a Christian marriage. We pray for those who are married and experiencing difficulty, who are going through a rough patch. Communication is broken down. Conflicts never seem to get resolved. I pray, Lord, that you'll give wisdom, that you'll cause these individuals to humble themselves before each other and before you, that they will sincerely repent of their selfishness and self-centeredness.
that they will put prejudice and pride and all the things that war against a healthy marriage, that they'll set those things aside and in complete dependence on your spirit, regain ground in their marriage and become healthy and whole with the help of your spirit. We pray today, Lord, for individuals who are in the midst of separation or in the midst of a divorce. Their pain is great. Tears flow steadily. The consequences with children and family and relationships and finances and all the rest is very real. We pray, O God, that you would bind up the brokenhearted and you would draw them to yourself. And we pray, Lord, for single folk. We pray that, Lord, you would keep them pure and holy and that you would make them strong in the Lord. And that as they take up their place within the community of your people here, that they would find love and acceptance in a world that is predominated by married people, that the single among us would understand that you've called them to that and that you will empower them to lead a holy life in their singleness. Heal us in the broken places, Lord. Fill us up with your marvelous grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.